0: Uh, this morning is a little bit of a special morning for us uh, parents you you may have like uh, had to fight your kids for the snacks there in the lobby. We didn't give you any heads up on that um, i'll give you I want to give you a little bit of context for why this morning is special, what it is that we're celebrating. If you're new with us in the last few years, you've maybe heard us talk about our church planting team in Western Asia, but maybe you don't have much context for like what that means or what we're talking about when we talk about that. Um, Eight years ago, we sent a team over to Western Asia with the goal and the vision of planting a church of local uh, indigenous worshipers in the least reached westernized nation in the world. And over time, over the last eight years, some, uh, a few individuals have come back from that team. They were there for a time. Uh, Some have come back. Some are still there. We've added to that team, which we'll we'll tell you about here in a little while. But what's happened is that God has been faithful through the work of that team, through language learning and relationship building and their efforts in, in evangelism and sharing too raise up what began as a very small group of believers and now is this kind of ever-growing church that is present in the capital city of the least reached country in, uh, western country in the world. And, uh, it has been a joy to see the work that God has done in and through that team and that he continues to do. And we have two, uh, well, we have the the whole family, two adults from that team here with us, the Matthews. And so I want to invite Drew and Sarah to come up. When we launched our team out, Drew was on staff here at at LCF. He was uh in the role that Adam Adam was in essentially, but then before he left, he sort of transitioned over to to missions and so um He was an integral part of the vision for that team and then kind of orchestrating and coordinating and leading and has continued to lead that team over in Western Asia. And one of the things that we're celebrating this morning is not just that Drew and Sarah are here and that they're going to give us an update and that uh, Drew's going to preach. One of the things that we're celebrating is that because of the faithfulness of our congregation over the last few years, uh, when COVID Set in and, and the pandemic did all that it did. We, as a, a church, just trying to kind of steward our finances as well, like sh- kind of tightened in the budget to be careful with what we weren't sure what giving was going to look like. But you, as a congregation, continued to give faithfully, and it actually created an excess um, of giving within the life of our church. And we didn't know it at the time, but as the church plant in Western Asia continued to grow. They, got, they were starting to get a little bit weary of hosting that church in their homes or apartments every Sunday. And so they started looking for a building. And because of your faithfulness in giving and God's goodness to us in that, uh, we were able to partner with them in purchasing a building space for them to worship in. And actually this Sunday in Western Asia, they met and worshiped in that building for the very first time. And so... Uh, That is, that's a beautiful picture of what partnership in missions can look like. A team goes, but a whole church is engaged in the effort to share the gospel cross-culturally and your faithfulness in giving and in praying and in supporting over the years. uh, God has been doing some incredible work in and through that team. And so we're going to let Sarah and Drew give a bit of an update on what's happening in Western Asia. And then Drew is going to preach for us this morning.
1: Thank you, and it's great to see all of you. I told First Service they were my favorite, but you're my favorite. (laughs) All right. We're going to show you a few pictures and talk about a few uh, of the highlights of what's going on in Western Asia right now. So the first thing we want to report on is that we have some new teammates. They're also from LCF, and many of you know them. Brad and Tiffany and Lana Folk are now uh, on the same team as us in the capital city. They were out in the western part of our country for a little bit over a year, is serving with a different team, Uh, but God's timing was such that it's time for them to be with us now, and we're excited about that. They are looking for a home and transitioning to our city here as we speak. They're staying in our home right now, and uh, we're glad that they can do that because we're here. So uh, this is what our team looks like now. If we see the next picture, we have three families, the Korshat family, the Folk family, and our family and while we're on this slide i'll go ahead and say this we have some magnets uh for you to take that have this picture on them where are they been they're out by the rice crispy treats. treats so you should take one uh so make sure you make sure you take one of those home with you if you like and uh we hope that it reminds you to pray for us and for our team so that's back there for you to take this morning i'll turn it over to sarah
2: so you may be wondering, what is the name of your church? It is not Liberty Christian Fellowship Extension. It is Mujde um, Kilisesi, and that means Good News Church. It is also the word for gospel. And we have been meeting in a home for the almost the last five years, and um, that, a lot of that has been in our home, and I've loved enjoying getting to use my gift of serving and hospitality, um, and that's also created a really family environment for our members. Um, Initially, we thought we would plant house churches and continue to plant more when they outgrew the space, but the longer we've been there, um, God made it a point through just understanding more the cultural, cultural dynamics and the laws of the land that having a building space of worship is actually what is best for the church, and so we were convinced of this about two years ago, and we started the search process, and praying, and just waiting on the Lord to provide, and like Tim said, this Sunday, um, God has answered, finally, we have purchased a beautiful um, two-story flat in an apartment building, you, you can see it behind us, on the top right, Our, yeah, um, and just so excited uh, of what the Lord has done. So I'll now let my teammates share a little bit more from inside this space. Take 10.
0: Hey, LCF. We're so excited to be standing in this place together uh, where Good News Church is going to be meeting. The last four and a half years, we've been meeting at homes, and uh, I know the people at Good News Church are very excited about worshiping here in this new space, inviting their friends and their family to come check out the truth about Jesus and for them to hear the gospel. Uh, So thank you for your partnership. Uh, We're so, so excited to be here.
2: We've just been amazed at the way God has changed lives and the way that he is building his church here. And we're so excited for this space to be a place where people can continue to grow and also new people can come and learn about Christ.
0: We're also really excited about the location of this new space. Uh, it's a really popular area, and there's a lot of people passing by, and so we should get a lot more people getting exposed to the gospel who aren't in our normal spheres of influence.
2: Thank you again LCF for your continual support and your prayers, and we're so excited to see how the Lord uses this space.
1: Thank, Thank you, LCF! Thank you for praising God with us for this latest development. Uh, we are We're thrilled um, that the timing is such that it is. It's been a long journey to get to that point. And uh, I love this picture because it, it shows the faces of the partnership and the relationship that LCF has with Good News Church in Western Asia. This picture was from March Uh, Many of you see your own faces in there, intermingled with the members of our church. So I hope that uh, this picture also causes you to rejoice and praise God as we remember our our partnership together. A few more. I want to take a few more minutes here to highlight a, uh, a couple more things. Number one, I want to talk about why do we plant churches? It's been, it's been eight years for some of you. Some of you have never met us and you might be wondering, well, of all the things that can be done, all the activities, all the wonderful activities we hear about in the missions world even, why plant a church or why plant churches? Some people have even said to me over the years, doesn't it say in the Great Commission at the end of Matthew that we're just supposed to make disciples, individual disciples is, is what matters. Uh, but I just want to take a minute to share with you that if you actually dig a little bit, little bit deeper, even if you just stay in Matthew's gospel itself, you will see Jesus talking about the church You will see him teaching on his uh, program of expansion. I don't want to call the church a program, but I just use that word. Uh, His preferred method of expansion for his kingdom is the church. And so we don't get to decide on it being something else. Uh, Who said this quote right here? He said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who said that? Jesus. Way to go is as, as Matthew 16:18, 18, uh, we see Jesus giving the keys uh, to the church of authority to bind and to loosen there in that same chapter. We see a few chapters later in chapter 18, he's giving the church authority um, to discipline and to uh, to decide on, on real members of the church or not. And so Jesus' plan is the church and we don't see a plan B and a lot of times, again, I don't want to knock anybody else who does a different activity overseas, but we know from experience that one reason why people don't church plant is because it's hard. It's 10 steps forward and nine steps back. Uh, not every month, there's not, there's not something to write home about every month, depending on how that, how that month went. Uh, maybe there's a struggle to write home about uh, more often than, than you see the fruit that you want to see. Uh, so please keep praying for us over there. But please know that we're in this together as we uh, establish, as we partner with God as He establishes His rule and reign on the earth through the church. Now, what do we say when we uh, when we say church? What do we mean? Um, we work with Avant Ministries. And they they help us with a basic definition of what church is. The LCF is aware of this too, and is, is part of it as well. So we have been a church now, as we said, for four and a half years. But our next goal is to decide when is our church healthy enough that the foreigners can start to to move away, and that's our job. That's our goal is to to work ourselves out of a job. So Avant gives us thirteen categories, and don't worry, we're not going to go through all of these. Thirteen. Um, we call them irreducible minimums that must be met in order to have a, a healthy church. And we're constantly kind of evaluating where we are in these categories. Some are stronger than others. So I wanna share a couple of weaknesses with you right now because I want you to pray for them. I want us to be able to pray about these things together when you think about us over there and our body over there in Western Asia. So I highlighted a couple of things up there. The first two over there on the left side are kind of the same category. And that is that we wanna see... Uh, native people in that country leading the church we want to see them qualified as leaders that can lead and then we want to see them governing that church independent of missionaries and that is a daunting task the daunting task because we want to see multiple people we don't just want to hand it off to one person because we see that in scripture too so pray for us in that Uh, some days it feels like that's going to take another 20 years some days it feels promising, like, "Oh, we might actually have something here, and uh, we just we need prayer, and we need to um, expect the Lord to move in this category together. The other thing is that we want to see the local body there fund. Uh, the church itself. As you heard, we have great cause to celebrate that, that LCF can help. We can partner together on a, on a big financial need, such as a building, and that's great. We're glad that we're able to do that. But we want to see the day to day life of the church be funded, not by uh, outside money. And that is also a very daunting uh, thing to consider, especially in our country where the economy is very poor at the moment. Um, And there are people who have not been taught to uh, growing up in their life. We're trying to teach them now to give. They've never had that modeled for them. Uh, Seems like a foreign concept. And so please pray for us in these categories. And I think we're going to pray right now.
3: It's good to have you guys here this morning. Yeah. Uh, Would you stand with me this morning as we lift up uh, the Matthews family, as we lift up Mujde Church, and thank God for all that he's doing? Father, we give you praise and thanks because all things are from you and through you and to you. And God, that um, Lord, we know that you created this world and yet we have fallen far short of your glory, and yet you pursued us in Christ Jesus. God, that we have been recipients of the gospel. We in this room right now have been able to hear and receive life in your name, in the name of your son, and God, that we have been called into your story to make your name great among the nations, that we would share that good news, with those who have never heard. Father, we thank you for the birth of this church. We thank you for uh, these believers and we ask that you would strengthen them, that their hearts would grow in the gospel. Father, we see tangibly this death to life coming out of Islam and coming into Christianity. Lord, to know your name. God, we praise and thank you for that. Father, we ask that you would continue to grow each person. And Father, that you would do that in our midst as well. Lord, that our hearts here at LCF, their hearts there at Mujda Church, that we would grow up into your likeness. God, as Drew shares the word today, Lord, that you would have first place in our hearts and that you would uh, provide leadership at this new church, that you would lead their hearts in giving, that you would lead their hearts in sharing the gospel. And Father, that we would see, God, a multiplying effect in Western Asia. Father, we pray that the harvest would continue. Lord, raise up and send more laborers. Lord, we lift up the Matthews and ask that you would bless them. Bless them on this whole missions assignment, that you would refresh their hearts, that you would comfort their hearts, that you would bless their kids. Lord, let this time be sweet as they connect with churches and partners, reconnecting with their families, grandpa and grandma, Lord, people they don't get to see. Father, let this time be sweet. And most of all, Father, may they be strengthened in their hearts with the knowledge of who you are. God, that you'd encounter them uh, in any places of Uh, pain, or difficulty, or weariness, that you would show the beauty and glory of your son to them. Father, bless them as they are here. God, we lift this up in Jesus' name, amen.
1: Amen. Thanks, Ben. As we transition to a time of exploring God's word, together this morning. We're actually going to stay in Western Asia. Is that okay with you? Go ahead and open your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. We're going to take a quick break from the Genesis series. However, did you know that as you work through the first few chapters of Genesis, you are dangerously close, if not within the borders of our country? We don't know, uh, for example, where the Garden of Eden was exactly located, but we see the Tigris and the Euphrates rivers mentioned in that chapter, both of which flow right through our country. And now we are in the account of Noah and the flood. So Bible trivia question: Where did the ark first come to rest after the flood waters receded? Genesis 8:4 on the mountains of Ararat. Where is Ararat located? You guessed it. It's in the easternmost point of our country. Here's a picture from the bottom and the top of Mount Ararat. This was taken exactly a year ago, June 2022. 17,000 feet, so high that our guide, who we were required to go with, could not quite make it to the top that day. So it was just the three of us up there. great memories. Many uh, researchers still travel to this region every year, hoping to find some evidence of the ark. Unfortunately, we did not come back from our hike with any gopher wood. I'm sorry, would have loved to presented that to Tim during next week's sermon. That, w- <laughs> that would have been wonderful. There are uh, a, a vast number of foothills uh, and smaller peaks in the surrounding areas, and most people think that the ark probably landed in one of these, in fact, here you see a picture of a, an indentation in the side of a hill where some people think this was actually the ark because the dimensions are roughly similar. In fact, this brown sign that you see over here actually says in the local language, Noah's Ark. So what do you think? Is that it? Why don't you come over and see for yourself? <laughs> now, uh, to be clear, I'm not questioning at all the historical reality of the flood just questioning my country's tactics to get your tourism dollars. So you can come over and fall victim to that if you want to. Let's stay in Western Asia, but we're gonna take a trip to the New Testament in Acts chapter 19 and we're also going to take a trip as you see on this map here from the eastern part of our country to the west coast because in Acts chapter 19 Paul is on his third missionary journey and he's in the midst of a three-year stay in Ephesus. So you see the location of uh, Ararat in Ephesus relative to where the team lives. In the capital city. Now, some of you know Ephesus's location well because you've walked its streets. Let's see a few more pictures. Some of you were there in 2023, that's this year. Others were there in 2022, and the few, the proud, the first LCF team to come over was there in 2017. In our passage today, we are hanging out in Ephesus around the year 53. So, Dad, that's exactly 1900 years before you were born. Happy Father's Day. <laughs> 53 AD, and before we read, we need to know something about that context, okay? So, in the first century, Ephesus was the capital of Asia Minor, or the province of Asia at that time. It was a bustling metropolis of around 250,000 people, very large at that time. It was on major travel and trade routes. It was also on a harbor that was accessible to almost the entire world. And so we begin to understand why Paul thought it was strategic to try to get to Ephesus. And he was trying to get there. You might remember that passage in Acts 16 where he's trying to go that way, but the Holy Spirit prevents him, says you're going to go to Europe first. And when he finally gets there, he stays for three years, longer than he stays in other places. Why? It's strategic. It's strategic. We see uh, some details about what he was doing there. Look at verse 8, 9, and 10. And in verse 9, it says he was teaching in the synagogue. Later, he was reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. To the effect that, verse 10, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So major ministry going on here. A church was also planted because Paul also read Jesus' words, knew Jesus' words. And Paul later corresponds with this church in the letter to the Ephesians, which we also have. We also see a special meeting with the elders from that church in Acts chapter 20. So he had a meaningful relationship with them. I want you to think about this. Out of all that went on, all the amazing things that likely went on in three years of Paul at Ephesus, we only have one chapter of Acts devoted to it. And so Luke is deciding, which events from these three years do I want to include? And I'm glad that he included this one that starts in verse 11 that we're going to read today because I think the Holy Spirit knew that it would have much to speak to us today. Isn't it amazing how God does that? These events from 2,000 years ago speak to us today. So let's tune in as we read starting in chapter 19, verse 11. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands so that even face cloths or aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick And the diseases left them, and the evil spirits came out of them. Now some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists also attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish high priest, were doing this. The evil spirit answered them, I know Jesus, and I recognize Paul, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all and prevailed against them so that they ran out of that house naked and wounded. When we take visitors to Ephesus, we usually try to reenact this scene for dramatic effect, but I couldn't talk any of this year's guests into that. Now, last year, uh, Ben Wagoner and Brian Bliss were actually ready to go. Um, But, you know, there were kids there and... The other tourists wouldn't have any context. And we started imagining the the world headlines about pastors in Ephesus showing a little bit too much of themselves. That would have caused quite the reaction. Well, this event did cause quite the reaction. And Christian brother and sister, I want you to think specifically about what the Holy Spirit was doing among these believers as we read these next verses. And I want you to ask yourself, am I this cooperative with the Holy Spirit in my own life when he reveals sin to me. Verse 17, when this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, they became afraid. The Greek sentence says, fear fell on them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices, while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. In this way, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. So let's understand what's going on here. Paul and his team, they show up in Ephesus. They're teaching the message of God's kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, just like they teach everywhere. And God is confirming their message. He's affirming Paul's apostleship by allowing signs to happen, healings, uh, casting out of evil spirits. And there are some Jews there who don't know Jesus, but they make a living exercising demons and they see the power that Paul is displaying here and they say, give me some of that. I'll try some of that. They try to harness the power without submitting to the message that Paul is preaching. They try to use a formula without actually having faith. And what happens to them? They get punked, don't they? Does that word still get used around here? It's been a, it's been a decade or so. I almost titled today's sermon, Opposers uh, Who Pretend They Have Power Get Punked. I wasn't sure about the lingo, but that is what happens here. They're humiliated in front of everyone. And this uh, this domination by the demon-possessed man results in a reaction of healthy reverence, fear of God spreading among the believers, a a fear that provokes the people of God to come and lay down anything in their lives that is opposed to Jesus and the pure worship of him. I have a, a favorite drink that I think is so pure, it should never be mixed with anything else. shouldn't be contaminated. It's been one of my favorites since I've been a child. Any guesses? It's chocolate milk. <laughs> Sometimes I go to the grocery store just to get chocolate milk. And of course, I come home and my wife says, well, I had a list of these other things that you could have got for me. Now I'm going to have to go out there. But sorry, hon, I was just focused on the chocolate milk. In fact, a few years ago, I had a doctor who just happens to be my dad, happy Father's Day, say that chocolate milk's actually good for your body after a workout. And so, I I have a reason to love this drink. I started trying to share my chocolate milk with my kids, though, and one day something disgusting happened. My daughter, she mixed my chocolate milk with the juice that was on the table. Yeah, I know, I mean, the, 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 actually the acid in the juice can actually cause the milk to curdle. They don't mix well. And I mean, how could you take the best thing in the universe and mix it with something lesser? And yeah, I know some of you, my dad included, he's a chemist, and other smart people out here are probably thinking, well, you know, chocolate milk is a mix itself. But this is called an illustration. Let's keep rolling with it. It's pure and it shouldn't be mixed with anything else. So I don't share my chocolate milk anymore. I keep it in the back of the fridge, hidden behind some things because I can't stand the thought of it being contaminated or mixed with anything else. It doesn't mix well. Well, friends, you know what else doesn't mix well? The worship of Jesus and your way of life. The pursuit of Jesus and your philosophy of life. They don't mix. The call of Christ and your competing life's goals. The character of God and your conception of what God should be like. They don't mix well. But unfortunately, ever since the Garden of Eden... People have been trying to mix them. Sinful human beings, Allah, all of us, have been diluting the identity, the words, the cause, uh, the call of Jesus, and mixing it together with our own thoughts and beliefs. Of course we say, Jesus was a wonderful person. He said some profound things, but give my life completely to him? And what about those sayings that don't really sync up with my life? I don't know about those, but I'll take the things that I like, and I'll sprinkle them in to improve my life. Have you ever been guilty of this? All of us are guilty. Our deceitful, self-serving hearts want to benefit from Jesus. Of course, if he's got something he can do for me, I'm in. Yet, we want to live life like we want to. We want to add Jesus in as long as he doesn't inconvenience our lives. And so practically, what are we doing when this happens? We're creating our own belief system. We're creating our own Christianity even that's comfortable for us. I wanna invite us this morning to be aware of this dangerous tendency that exists in all of our hearts to come to Jesus today and every day, daily, and surrender whatever might be competing to the call to follow him uncontaminated by anything else. Now we probably could be done with the sermon right there, but Tim's given me a little bit more time. So we're gonna look at four principles arising from our passage that can challenge and encourage us in this pursuit of unadulterated allegiance to Jesus. These are four truths from Acts 19, 11 to 20. Number one, God is the subject of, of the story. This episode begins with God was doing, because the subject in the Greek sentence is unmistakably God. Ha theos epoe, God was continually doing. We pick up these stories and we say, we're reading about Paul and his missionary journeys. No, we're reading about God doing marvelous things, about the Holy Spirit building his church. We're reading about Jesus's mission going forward he just happens to include people like Paul. Now, Tim made this point briefly last week. We're not reading about Noah and the flood. We're reading about a God who shows marvelous grace. And, and his goodness, he decides to show favor on a man. And then this man, of course, responds with faith. This story is about God. We are seeing the God, when we open the Bible, who oversees all of history because it is his story isn't it yet the way we read it sometimes and not even seeing the main character reveals it in our own hearts we kind of want the story to be about me don't we well what does it say about me this is the mistake of the jewish exorcist they think that they can have some of the power that paul has they can have some of this special jesus stuff if it helps promote me and and my goals Where most of humanity gets sidetracked is that we think we are the subject of the story. This is about me. This is about my becoming, my achieving, my fulfillment, my fill in the blank. And it doesn't help that we live in existential, self made, self promoting United States of America. We need to be aware of these tendencies. So friend, how are you doing with this one? Maybe some of you just need to stop right here and say, Father, I've been making this about me lately, but this is about you. Luke makes it easy for us to see here that God is the subject of the story. How does this account end? In verse 20, it says, the word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Again, what's the subject He's always been the subject, friends. What are the first words of the Bible? In the beginning, God. What does the Bible end with? Jesus is coming soon, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The point of the Bible is the God of the Bible. And the story is one of exalting himself. If you're not aware of this, then you're into some other story. It says in verse 8, which we didn't read a few verses earlier, that Paul was persuading them about the kingdom of God. This is a story about a king and his kingdom. Now, maybe you're here and you're not really into the Bible. Maybe you just came for Father's Day or something, or you're hoping to hear some things today that just make you feel good about your life. Now, I'm gonna look at you lovingly and everyone else in the eye, and I'm gonna say a few things that we all need to remind ourselves of. God didn't even need to create you. He existed in perfect joy and completeness without us. Yet, he is loving and relational, and he decided, he in his sovereign will, uh, with his mighty hand, decided to create you. He set his love on you. He set his creativity on you, and he ordained, All the days of your life before any of them came to be, it says in God's Word. And one day, all will realize that the subject of the story was God all along. I want to invite you to realize that today. Christians, uh, we have our own version of making it about us. Sure, we know that we're supposed to say it's about God, right? We know the phrases to say, the songs to sing, we know the cliches, but I just want to ask ourselves this morning, do we really want God today or do we want something he can give us like these exorcists did? I, I've been following along the Genesis series with you all and when we see the, the ugliness and the de- depravity of sin, how could we dare say, God should kind of reward me for the way I've been living? Sin is terrible. It's prevalent. It's prevalent. It's everywhere. We should be in awe that a marvelous God would stoop down to deal with a sinner like me. Oh, this story is about him. We've seen in Genesis, right? Adam had deep fellowship with God, such as as no other human being save Jesus has ever experienced, yet even he fell. Why? He wanted to make the story about himself. Conditions were perfect, yet he still fell into this tendency. Friends, take heed lest you fall. God is the subject of the story. Now, the wonder of it all is that God sees fit to include us in this story, isn't it? God allows us a place in this story. Hallelujah. And he graciously lets us see in this passage today how we can take part in it. Truth number two, the path to participation in God's story is a personal relationship with Jesus. I think Luke wants us to see that here in, this, in these verses. The seven sons of Sceva, they, they try to jam Jesus into their formula with a very impersonal incantation in verse 13. What do they say? I command you by the Jesus that Paul preaches. Like, what is that anyway? I mean, what if I came here after two years of you not seeing me and say, I preached to you the way Tim preaches. You all would see right through that. I can't do it. I can't do it. You'd see right through me the way the demon sees right through this phony attempt. And the demon actually turns the conversation here to something I think Luke wants us to think about. He says this in verse 15. I know Jesus and I recognize Paul, but who are you? In other words, what kind of relationship do you have with Jesus to back up this claim on his power? And we saw what happened to these guys. They're openly humiliated. In verse 16, they're fleeing naked and wounded. The Greek word for wounded is traumatizo. Yes, I'll say they were traumatized. The text says that the demon, quote, prevailed. Greek verb iskuo. The demon is prevailing here. Okay, this is not what's supposed to happen. Something is out of whack. He overpowered these, these fakers and he embarrassed them for all to see. This is maybe not our favorite passage in the Bible, but Jesus said it, so we're going to pay attention to it. Jesus said in Matthew 7 that many people who do things in his name will be surprised to find out that he never knew them in relationship and that that's what matters. So we know from Jesus' own words that we're not to confuse name-dropping with knowing. We're not to misapply activity in Jesus name with abiding in Jesus. We're not even to mistake ministry with meaningful relationship and knowing of God. Now these things should flow out of a relationship with Jesus but they don't, they're no substitute for them. What matters is knowing him. My friend, God wants to include you in the story. That personal fellowship that we're reading about, that Adam and Eve had with God in Genesis chapter two, that's what they were created for. That's what you were created for. But you and I, each of us, have tried to make the story about ourselves. We've pursued sin, we've preferred sin instead of God, and we have fallen away from this relationship that we were created for. And now we stand liable to the judgment and to the punishment of sin for sin, namely death. Not just physical death, but far worse, eternal spiritual death, far from this relationship that we were created to have. But God. Who's the subject? But God. According to his great love and his mercy, he sent Jesus to the earth. And Jesus came and he lived perfectly so that he could impute righteousness that we don't have. He died willingly to absorb the wrath that we deserve against our self-centered, make me the center of the story, sin. Hallelujah. And you know what Jesus did on the cross? That place where the world thought it was getting the best of him, what was he doing? He was humiliating the rulers and authorities. The Bible says he put them to open shame. All perfect, all powerful Jesus prevailed. No demons prevailing there at that scene. And he rose from the dead to put an exclamation point on the victory. So now what? You've probably heard that story I just said before. But now what? God invites you back into knowing him in relationship. And this is what matters. Luke wants us to see this today. He invites you into relationship with him. Let's think of some more of Jesus' words in John 17, 3. Jesus says, now this is eternal life. Anybody want eternal life? Let's let our ears perk up here. Jesus is praying to his father and he says, this is eternal life that they may what? Know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. This is eternal life. Not that they said a prayer at church camp once. Not that they can go back in their mother's photo album and find the place where they were sprinkled or baptized. Knowing God in relationship is eternal life. And we're not talking about knowing about somebody, are we? We're talking about knowing somebody. The demons know all about Jesus. All of you know something about God just by showing up here and listening today, but we're talking about knowing God in relationship through Jesus Christ. When I was a kid, I knew everything there was to know about Michael Jordan, pretty much. His stats, his birthday, his wife's name, his kids' names, where he lived, the cars that he drove. But if I went up to Mike's house today and said, Mike, let's kick it, man, what's he going to say to me? I don't know you. Name dropping is not going to work. We know from ancient pagan uh, texts that the naming of important names in that culture, especially in formulas where you're trying to cast out a demon, was very prevalent. It was believed that if you named a name, it had magical power. You could harness that power, uh the knowledge of, of the name of a particular person, of an important person, or a god. And this is one reason why Paul says in Ephesians uh, chapter 1, verse 21, that Jesus is above every name that is named. He knows who he's talking to there in that context. We see in today's episode that some pretenders want to name the name of Jesus without knowing him. But God graciously lets us see that naming the name means nothing without knowing the named, right? Naming the name means nothing without knowing the named. So friend, do you know Jesus? Do you know this Jesus that we're talking about? The path to participation in God's story is a personal relationship with Jesus. Truth number three both warns the non-Christian and exhorts the Christian striving to walk with Jesus. From our text, we see that Jesus' power only works through those who possess his presence. Jesus' power is not a commodity to be had by everybody. It only works through those who possess his presence. People in first century Ephesus were obsessed with power. We're seeing that. My former professor, a renowned New Testament scholar, Clint Arnold, says this in his book, Power and Magic. Hellenistic magic was widely practiced in Ephesus. And it was chiefly concerned with power and supernatural powers. So all these magic books we see people have, it's because they're obsessed with power. And into this obsession with power, Jesus is now preached. And we see that the result is some people now see Jesus as a magical device and access to a a power source to use for their own purposes. And what happened to them again? Do we ever do that today? Jesus is not your rabbit's foot. Jesus is not your lucky charm. He's not a genie that you go to when you have a wish. He's not a video game power boost. Jesus is God. God. And he wants to manifest his presence in your life. Now, how does this miraculous thing happen? Through faith, doesn't it? You hear this message every week. We're going to keep preaching it. Through faith. It's a gift. It's only because of what he has done. He's the subject. And we can appropriate it. We can have this gift through faith. By surrendering our life to the cause of this king and his kingdom. We can have his very presence with us and we have to have this presence if we want this power we're talking about. Paul says in another place, I have actually been crucified with Christ. Paul no longer exists. But Christ lives in me and the life I live is only by faith in him. These exorcists tried to make the story about themselves and and Paul and who can get more power, who's going to win this rivalry, but this is not a story on a human level, is it? Is a story about a ruler who came to establish his rule in our lives. And when we submit to his lordship, he's gracious enough to give us his spirit. And now we are sanctified into his likeness. Amazing. I mean, it just keeps getting better being part of this story. By the way, uh, this episode comes on the heels of of an account involving quote-unquote disciples who only know John's baptism, if you look at the start of Acts 19, but they don't know the Holy Spirit. They haven't heard of the Holy Spirit. And this must be dealt with, Luke shows us, because a disciple who doesn't know the Holy Spirit is not a disciple. It's just a pretender trying to use Jesus' name for something else. So friend, I want to ask you another question. Do you know the power of the Holy Spirit? Working in your life, the presence of God. How how might He show Himself in your life? You might care about sin. You might care about people who don't know Jesus and you want to share this message because the only thing that can save them is Jesus. Jesus is not one of many options to be mixed in with the others, is He? In Ephesus, He became just one magical formula. They could be used among many let me tell you what happens in modern day western asia sometimes it's it's very sad jesus gets mixed in with all the other religious ideas and practices ah that sounds good but uh, these things sound good too there's a a lighter version of of islam called alevism and we meet a lot of alevi people Alevi people are are more likely than a hardcore Muslim to to listen to us or to come to one of our meetings. And Alevis, they love uh, family. They value loving atmospheres. And sometimes they come to our gatherings and they say, oh, this is just like what I was taught growing up. I mean, Jesus fits into everything I've ever been taught. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Jesus doesn't fit into anything. And what, do we do this in ways in our culture? Like, is there a way we come up with a nice little version of Jesus that fits the way we want him to be? Jesus doesn't fit into anything. This is about the most dangerous thought we can have because it's subtle. It's not like we're bowing down to some stone figure, but in our hearts we're, we're mixing. And it's, it's, just, it's just as idolatrous. The Ephesians, they mixed Jesus with magic and power. What, what, what might we mix Jesus with? I want you to think about what your own version might be this morning. But here might be a couple of things in our culture we might be tempted to mix Jesus with. How about popularity or promotion? These are only potential uh, pretenders here, by the way, not the real thing. Ephesians valued power. We might value popularity or promotion. If Jesus can earn me a hearing with someone or increase my status in someone's eyes, I'll play that card. I'll drop that name. Or maybe another version is, if I work hard for God, he will promote me on this earth. We might be tempted to mix Jesus with patriotism. Jesus is pro-America. This country is God's country. Now, don't misunderstand me, please. We should be appropriately politically involved. We should use our vote and our voice prayerfully and wisely. But what I'm saying here is I don't think Jesus is accomplishing his mission in the world with a red, white, and blue flag wrapped around himself. Can you imagine if we tried to share that message in another country? Not going to happen. Okay? Don't mix Jesus with patriotism. How about prosperity? God wants me to prosper, right? If I, if I give enough to him, or if I have enough faith, or if I speak the right words of faith, that's kind of maybe a modern day formula, like these exorcists used, I will avoid sickness and riches, right? That's what God wants. Friends, if you are not aware that there are many variations of this crap, contaminating the church, then you need to wake up and realize that there are preachers packaging up this garbage and calling it the gospel and they're serving it all over the world. I see it in my country and it makes me sick to my stomach. When we come to Jesus, we renounce the riches of the world and we refuse the old man in us that loves money and prosperity. Money, dough, Cash, paper. If she was a woman, I promise I used to date her. But now that we broke up, she'd be calling your boy a hater. Because all I do is use her for glorifying my maker. My treasure's up in heaven. Christ is my satisfaction. If I was broke, I'd be richer than folk who never had him. God is the gospel. Not a new Bentley was empty, but he gave me life. And that's plenty. And it's sickening that knowing God ain't good enough, we got to tell them they can get rich quickly. This is heresy false. It's not true. Second Corinthians chapter 8 and verse 2. Read that. Please believe that. Forget a C note, man. They pockets was E flat, and they still had joy. God God is the gospel, not a means to any of these pretenders we see on the screen. If you don't know Lecrae's old stuff, let's hang out for an afternoon. And if you do, yes, I realize I skipped a line in there, but our time is a little limited. So... You can't have the power of God without the presence of God. And and when the Holy Spirit indwells us, he begins to sanctify us out of this mixing tendency, doesn't he? Jesus said the Father is searching for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. John 4, to the Samaritan woman. Will you be one of those? In spirit and in truth. When people mix Jesus with other thoughts or ideas, sometimes we call this syncretism syncretism. God's people have struggled with syncretism for centuries as we have lived among the peoples of the world. It's not as blatant or obvious as idolatry. We're not visibly bowing down to something. Like I said, it's a little more subtle, but it's just as dangerous And it's just as sinful. We dilute the gospel. We pretend that Jesus is just one element on a platter that we can pick from to fill ourselves up as if that's what life is all about, my fulfillment. It seems harmless just to come to Jesus sometimes but enjoy the rest of the world the rest of the time. But let me tell you what you're doing with this activity that seems harmless. You are slowly snacking on the smorgasbord of Satan's delicacies while he lulls you to sleep. Soon you're out of shape, you're slow, you're sluggishly walling around, wallowing around in a syncretistic slumber. Wake up! Wake up, church. Jesus wants us to see this morning that He is not to be trifled with. He's not a name to put in a formula, He's not just a wish to make when you need it. Let's repent. Let's repent. It's time to repent. That leads us to truth number four. What does it look like when healthy fear falls on a group of believers? Real followers of Christ respond to sin with repentance. And Tim and the other teachers have been calling us to this as we see the reality of sin in the first few chapters of Genesis. We see it here in Acts. What sort of response do we see from these believers? Verse 18, fear fell on them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high esteem. And e megaluneto, The word that the name of the Lord was mega. It was magnified among them to the point where many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices. While many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Now you're a person just like me. Let me ask you. How easy is it to come out in front of everybody and confess some sin? The Holy Spirit's at work here. When was the last time He worked in you like this? Now, we laughed earlier a little bit about verse 16, but make no mistake, there's no laughing going on here. These people are afraid. These men were physically harmed, but more crucial to the matter, they were shown to have no power, which means that all these magic books that people had in their homes, all their formulas and ideas and beliefs that are contrary to the kingdom of God are not just cute little traditions. They're heinously antithetical to the gospel and God, and anyone who practices them is liable to be openly humiliated and shamed. So fear is a healthy thing. We read a verse last week in Hebrews 11, that described Noah's faith in this way. Noah, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. We see the fear of God as a theme in the book of Acts, chapter 9, verse 31. It says, the church was living in the fear of the Lord. Does that describe our church? By the way, in the same verse, it says that they were uh, encouraged, multiplied, and strengthened. I think we want those things. How do they get those things? They're living in the fear of the Lord. And here in chapter 19, we have a specific example of what fear looks like. Fear of God looks like when it's manifested in a group of believers. What do we see? We see open confession. Open confession. They are are so reverent and appropriately fearful that they don't care how embarrassing it is to confess sin anymore because nothing could be as embarrassing as being shown to be phony like these exorcists. And they don't care how much it costs either. Did you see what value of magic books and, and, and sinful practices they burned up? If you look at your footnotes and do some currency conversion, we see that it was around $6 million worth of sin going up in flames. I mean, like, if we, if we did that here this morning, would it, would it be worth it to you? Or would our hearts be saying, give me that back? They don't care how much it costs. These magic books representing their syncretism, their mixing of Christ with the world, is now going up in flames because their hearts now burn for the pure worship of Jesus. So, I ask you, real followers of Christ, What needs to be thrown into the fire today? What do you need to come and and burn for the glory of God? What needs to be confessed so that the cause of Christ is no longer confused with the concoctions of the world? The worship team is going to come on up. And as we pour out our hearts in song and worship this morning, I want you to consider kneeling and, and confessing throwing your half-heartedness into the fire so that you now burn with a holy passion for the name of the Lord Jesus. Real followers of Christ respond to sin with repentance. And friends, I wanna say as I close here, one reason I'm so passionate about this is because I see myself in this story. I was a master at mixing Christ in with my other ideas. If he made me popular or promoted me in a certain group, I'd play that card. If there was a a girl I was interested in who thought it was cool to be a Christian, I'd pretend like I was one. I'd do some things for God because I thought he'd give me some of his power, maybe help me win a game or, or a scholarship. Then God. Who's the subject? Then God came and shattered all of that. God captivated all the compartments of my heart so that there was no more compartmentalizing, only capitulation to a king. God, the gospel came and gripped all of my life's goals so that the only goal remained was the glory of God. The Holy Spirit was alive in me. He was alive in these believers in in Ephesus, and I want to invite him to come be alive in us Today. Last phrase in this passage in verse 20, it says, The word of the Lord spread and prevailed. Can we let him prevail among us this morning? When the Holy Spirit is alive in us, he saves us out of our me centered stories and he sanctifies us out of any syncretism. As we sing together this morning, I want this to be an opportunity for the Holy Spirit to come and prevail. Let the word of God prevail whatever he's doing in your hearts let open confession untether your hearts from whatever holds them captive that's competing with the call of Christ and I want you to notice as we proclaim this song together we're not singing Christ be mingled or Christ be mixed let Christ be magnified